0: This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Resolution Foundation event. My name is Torsten Bell. I'm the Chief Exec of the Foundation. Now, we've got a treat today. We're gonna talk about trade, but not just about Brexit. We are gonna talk about it a bit, inevitably before everyone starts sweating and frothing at the mouth getting ready but we're not going to just talk about that we're going to take a slightly longer view over decades rather than over the last enjoyable six seven eight years eight years now oh christ eight years um and think about how has the exposure the nature of exposure to trade changed in britain over time how it's changed for good not just for ill, the, um, which obviously is the whole point. We're trying to improve the world, people. The, um, we're, so we're going to talk about how it's changed. We're going to talk about who it affects and how that's changed over time. Because in the end, if, it, if, if the last you know 150 years of watching trade policy and trade re- realities play out on our economies, it's that it has very different effects on different people. In lots of ways, it is distributional policy and then we're obviously going to have time to discuss what that all means for the years ahead because one of the things again that we should have learned in the last eight years is that we have some decisions to make on trade policy Uh, again for the first time it's a treat there's an entire department wandering around doing a bit of stuff um, in that space so what should everyone actually be doing so that is the plan for today um, we're doing that because we're publishing a report uh, written by Sophie Hale, our Principal Economist, who's first of all going to give you a summary of that report, a short presentation. And then we've got two great speakers. You're going to hear from Sir Vince Cable, who tells me here is a football camp minister and author of many books. Hmm. How many in total? How many are we up to now, Vince? Ten, ten books. Some would say excessive. The, um, uh, but you can tell us about the new one as well when we come to it, which is very much smack in this uh, territory. Emily, I'm not going to ask you how many books you've written. Uh, and then we're going to hear from Dr. Emily Jones, who's an associate professor in public policy at Oxford University and has been wrestling with lots of these issues, particularly in big picture senses of how the countries deal with trade shocks and exposure to um, trade. And then we're going to hear from all of you. Um, if you go onto Slido, it's hashtag trading standards. Do you see what we did there? That's where you can ask questions and vote in the polls, so do that. And those of you that are here in our slightly chilly basement this morning, people have coats on in here. This gentleman has a gilet, very 2020s. By 2030, gilets will be out again, but you've got, you've got a few years left uh, to go. Um, uh, but if you're here, you can ask questions, say for the knowledge that I won't comment on your sartorial choices when you ask those questions. Okay, it's a safe space. So that is the, it's honestly a safe space. That definitely won't be what happens. They're, right, so that is the plan for this morning. Emily, Sophie even, what is in, <laughs> sorry, no, pre- <laughs> Sophie, what is in your report? Um, all right.
1: Uh, thanks, Torsten. Um, So, uh, first of all, a big thank you to my many colleagues at Resolution Foundation for their input into this report. Um, and what we were looking at in this report, as Torsten said, is kind of how has exposure to trade in the UK changed over kind of a longer period, and, and what does that mean for um, where we should be kind of worried about um, international trade shocks. Um,
0: What does it mean for tech shops? There we go. Oh my gosh. (laughs)
1: Um, When most people think about um, who is most exposed to international trade, it does tend to be manufacturing workers um, that come to mind. And that's because these were the workers that have been most visibly harmed by international trade in our kind of recent past um, by um, arguably the kind of China shock or this kind of big import exposure that happened in the early 2000s. Uh, and this has at least been partially responsible for the kind of backlash against globalization that we've seen subsequently. Um, and here's our kind of spokesperson for that um, uh, backlash against globalization. But Trump was, um, you know, is particularly kind of focused on this. Um, he, um, you know, this is his his own title, I am a tariff man. Um, but he was, um, uh, you know, had a strong view that you needed to kind of protect those manufacturing jobs and and was really focused on that as being the kind of major um, exposure of international trade. Um, And he's not alone in having this sort of manufacturing centric view of um, the risks of international trade and how trade affects the economy. Um, But what we're trying to ask in this report is does that kind of still best serve the UK to be thinking about it in primarily those terms? Um, so when we look at what's happened over the last two decades, we see that there has been a sharp decline in manufacturing um, employment, um, in particular for uh, you know those workers who are at or above um, median pay, um, where you see um, a particularly big shift in um, employment out of manufacturing. Um, and so what this means is that this type of kind of exposure um, to, to this type of shock clearly has fallen um, over the last two decades. Um, and what we see here is that those on medium pay um, the number, the share of um, manufacturing employment fell by a third between 2000 and 2009 and was halved by 2022. Certain sectors that were particularly exposed to um, uh, the China shock, the kind of low value added manufacturing, for example, manufacture of leather and um, wearing apparel fell by even more. By you know, eighty to ninety percent of those jobs um, uh, have have now have now disappeared from the UK. Um, and so if What that means is that the kind of traditional exposure to international trade through manufacturing jobs is down. Um, We probably need to have a think again about the nature of how our trade exposure has changed. And there's sort of three things that we need to be thinking about in that context. So first of all, um, globalization has happened. um, And we'll kind of go through that and what that means. Um, But also that it's increasingly about exports and not just our import exposure. You know, We're just mainly thinking about kind of manufacturing um, from a kind of import penetration perspective. So what about the kind of export story? Um, And finally, um, it's about um, we need to be thinking beyond just the kind of production side and about the impact on our jobs and also think about um, how we uh, are exposed to trade as consumers. So I'll take those in turn. So starting first with um, the uh, globalisation has has happened. Um, higher openness essentially means that our exposure has changed but not fallen. But turning first here, what I've showed you before was that manufacturing employment has, has fallen. And this shift from employment in kind of traditionally high trade exposed sectors like manufacturing towards traditionally less exposed sectors like services has pushed down the average tradability of jobs and by kind of tradability here we're looking at kind of total trade and um, so exports and imports and um, as a share of kind of the total supply or total demand um, in sectors and then kind of weighted by um, where um, workers are employed. Uh, but as you can see here across the um, across the pay distribution uh, exposure was pushed down by these shifts between sectors and um, slightly more for higher paid workers because as we showed you before um, they saw the biggest decreases in um uh, manufacturing employment but these shifts have been um offset or or um perhaps even outweighed in some cases by um what's happened which is the general kind of increase in openness so on average sectors have become uh, more exposed to international trade um, and this has basically been happening despite the stories of sort of slowing international trade so globalization and um, but also um, despite the fact that we've had brexit which has reduced um trade openness in in the past few years but when we take a longer term view and when we think about the kind of 20 years um, picture The UK is a lot more open to trade and that's left our sectors a lot more exposed. So total trade has increased from 53% of GDP in 2000 to 65% in 2019. And when we put those two together, we see this kind of pattern where ultimately for most workers there's actually been relatively little change in the sort of overall average level of of trade exposure. Um, The exception to that is for our highest paid workers where they have seen um, trade exposure increasing. Um, and that's despite the fact that these were the workers, as we showed earlier, that have had kind of some of the largest shifts out of manufacturing employment. And the reason is that they've been moving into sectors which have been becoming um, even more um, exposed to international trade um, or have seen bigger increases in the exposure of international trade, which we'll come on to in a second. Um, but if we look at the 90th decile, so the, the decile around the 90th percentile of um paid workers. Um, They've become 18% more exposed to international trade between 2000 and 2019. So the second thing that we said we need to think about is the fact that this is about exports and not just imports. Um, So we already mentioned that sectors on average have become more exposed and if you look at the kind of left-hand side you can see most industries did become more exposed to international trade between 2000 and 2019, Um, so they were kind of shifting outwards. but. While declining manufacturing was becoming more import intensive, our professional services sectors, uh, which you can see here, were actually becoming more export oriented. So, um, um, when we kind of like break this down and we look at in a bit more detail at what's happening to these sectors, we see that there are, you know, a larger number of sectors in the economy are now kind of exposed to exports. It's increased from. um, uh, sorry increased from 15 sectors of the economy to 22 sectors of the economies which are now kind of highly export um, exposed um, over this period um, And when we put that together what we see is that across the pay distribution workers have become more export um, more exposed to trade through export so that's the blue, bars um, across all of them, that export exposure has increased. For most workers, um, particularly around in the middle, that has been offset by a reduction in the import exposure of their jobs. So that's essentially what's coming from them kind of moving out of the highly import exposed manufacturing sectors. Um, But for highest paid workers, where that increase in export exposure is actually the largest and we know that they have become more trade exposed is accounting for three quarters of the increase in trade exposure um, for those workers and um, is coming from the export side. So the third um, big change that we said we need to be thinking about um, and when we when we kind of refresh our thinking about international trade exposure is thinking more about um, Britain as consumers rather than just as workers uh, and what we see here and um, we've talked about the fact that openness increased over this period and um, the green line is looking specifically at openness in terms of imports so import um, uh, imports as a, as a share of GDP uh, and you can see as that increased in the green line we also see the import intensity of consumption increasing in the blue line uh, uh, which is shown in the blue line um, and the value um, in 2000 the total we consumed About 25% of the value of what we consumed came from imports. By 2019, um, it was around a third of it that came from imports. So it was kind of, um, we did see this big increase in our exposure internationally um, through what we consume and the kind of goods and services um, uh, that we um, consume as consumers. Right, and when we then break this down to look at how this varies across um, income, the income distribution, um, what we see here is that those on higher, higher income consumers are on average more, consu- more exposed to imports and the level is higher um, and what we also see is that between 2000 and 2019 um, the change was larger for them as well so that gap is actually increasing between um, low and higher income households. But ultimately what's driving this is almost entirely um, increased housing costs for lower income workers. So when we take out rent payments, you see that both in terms of the levels and in terms of the change between 2000 and 2019, the pattern looks a lot more similar across the income distribution. Um, So that basically might leave us to think that it's high income workers that are a lot more exposed to these kind of um, uh, trade shocks on the consumption, sh- on the consumption side. Um, but actually, there's two reasons to believe that it might be lower income consumers that are more highly exposed to volatile import prices. Um, and we'll go through them now. So the first is that of their kind of imported consumption, um, lower income households are much more heavily weighted, uh, have consumption that's much more heavily weighted to more volatile, um, essential spending items. Um, so global fuel prices are particularly volatile. Um, I mean, we've seen that in recent years with kind of energy price spikes and um, that we've lived through um, in 2022. Um, and they've also accounted for many of our largest kind of tra- terms of trade shocks um, over the last um, half, a, half a century. Uh, energy kind of related consumption items account for most of the most most many of the most volatile uh, items in our consumption basket but they also um, that the Volatility in fuel prices also feeds through into another area of essential spending, which is food. When we put these two together, what we see is that for lower income households, over a third of their imported consumption is coming from these food and fuel um, consumption, whereas it's, less, it's around a quarter for um, our highest income consumers. Because it's essential spending, it's also more difficult to substitute away from it when you have these um, big price shocks. So this is the first reason why we might think that lower income households actually are more exposed despite what we showed you before. Um, The second reason, this one's a a little bit more complicated so stay with me, but um, what that looked at was just the difference between um, what we consume, between products, um, and what also matters is within products what varieties different um, income households are consuming. And different and low income households are more likely to consume the sort of cheaper varieties so your sort of own brand products versus your kind of Heinz big beans is is one way to think about it Um, and what we looked at when we looked at this in detail what we found was that the price distribution at the lower end so the difference between kind of the lowest price products and the medium price products shrinks following a terms of trade shock and ultimately what that means is that cheaper varieties were changing in price by more than average or more expensive varieties and so So this chart is showing you the kind of cumulative response um, to that price variation at the bottom end of the price distribution following a terms of trade shock, and this is um, specifically a terms of trade shock that's around the size of um, uh, the the terms of trade shock that we saw after Brexit or after the um, Euro debt crisis, Um, and it does substantially reduce that kind of price variation. Um, It has a significant impact on highly traded goods um, at the lower end of the distribution, there's no significant impact at the upper end of the distribution, and there's no significant impact for low import intensive goods. Um, So it is specifically through this kind of channel that we're seeing this happen. And so lower income consumers are more exposed to these kind of more price sensitive imports than our initial analysis suggested, which doesn't allow you to look at the varieties um, within products that they consume. So where does this kind of leave us um, after we take into account those kind of three big trends in, in how exposure has changed? Well, manufacturing workers have sort of remained the focal point of what we think about when we think about the perceived um, risks from international trade, and in particular, the fear of a kind of second China shock coming um, and wiping out our manufacturing. Um, but ultimately, what we've seen is that our employment in manufacturing has, has fallen a lot, and so our exposure of to this type of shock coming again is a lot lower than it was, um, even in the early two thousands. Um, that I mean, ultimately we could have different types of import shocks, but this this kind of focus on this sort of um, import shock is um, has definitely kind of fallen. What has been much more overlooked and has had a lot less attention given to it is the risks that are posed by two different types of shocks so import prices um where we've seen consumption becoming um increasingly important as a a form of international trade exposure and global demand shocks um and interestingly those are the two shocks that we've actually lived through most recently so if we think over the last five years we had covid which was a massive global demand shock which affected our um, services you know demand for our services sectors and our, and our exports um, substantially particularly um, certain service sectors which relied on physical travel like tourism um, and obviously we've seen the um, energy price crisis in recent years which was a huge kind of import price shock and so what, what does this mean overall well it as we said we need to refresh our thinking about where our exposure to trade now lies um, and we need to think about this both in terms of the jobs that we do, but also in terms of what we consume. Um, workers across a lot more sectors of the economy are now exposed to exports. Um, and especially that's been focused in, in kind of our higher paid workers. But we're also more exposed as consumers. And so we need to be thinking about both sides. Uh, and ultimately, this means that um, our exposure has changed. But it means that the biggest threat f- to um Workers and consumers from international trade could actually come from sort of turning off the taps of global trade as opposed to necessarily the kind of unleashing of globalization. Great.
0: Thank you very much, Sophie. That's a lot of techie charts. Everyone, you've done very well. um, uh, Right. I mean, apart from anything else, if you take one thing from today, hopefully you'll take many things due to being very capable people, but the um, Is that lots of the last few years we've been talking about trade openness just going backwards because all we've talked about is brexit what we're trying to do here is encourage you to think about the last 25 years where even taking into account brexit trade openness is up and also the nature of our jobs and what we consume has changed and put all that together and then you get what sophia is telling us about now we're going to hear from vince who was a trade economist before we were all obsessed with it (laughs) over to you vince
2: Well thanks so I'll just say a few general contextual comments then something on Sophie's excellent paper uh, and then at, at the end her kind of forward looking uh, how we what conclusions we draw about policy in relation to trade and trade shocks first uh, the general context a sort of cross section of countries uh, Britain is actually boringly normal. Um, I mean, if you look at the share of trade in GDP, export plus imports, goods and services over GDP, Britain is about 70%, um, which is not surprising. I mean, you know, you have these highly trade-dependent economies, the Singapore's it's 300%. Um, if you've got big continental economies with an internal market, China, United States, particularly the United States, India, it's down in you know, a 25 to 40, something of that order of magnitude. Uh, small European countries about 100 uh, percent, even Germany actually, and that you know reflects the uh, intensity of the uh, internal market of the European Union. But Britain is boringly normal. Secondly, something about time trends. I rather question this assumption um, about you know relentless globalization and. Um, growing trade interdependence um, it's certainly true if you look at the post-war uh, trend uh, for the world you have this you know fairly steady uh, line going upwards of growing trade to GDP but it actually stops in 2008 uh, and the following decade um, trade to GDP actually fell we have this very abnormal period around the a pandemic and a sudden surge in, in 22, but 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 actually the globalisation process had, uh, was in serious trouble in the last decade globally. That wasn't true of the UK, the UK was a bit of an outlier in this respect, but if you look back over the long term at the UK, what I found rather surprising was that the level of trade exposure of the UK hasn't really changed over the last 50 years, big variations, um, and if you were wanting to do a, a sort of time series regression or something, I mean, the independent variable that, that you would you would be using, I think, and which would explain most of this, is the real effective exchange rate. Uh, you know, we had a surge uh, in the early eighties, the Thatcher era, when the exchange rate was used as a um, macroeconomic policy tool um, and had a significant effect on the tradable sector. Um, It similarly happened in the early part of New Labour not not for policy choice except that one of the consequences of an independent monetary policy is that we couldn't use the exchange rate (coughs) Uh, and and if you then took the real effective exchange rate and lagged it I think you would probably find this explains most of what's happened in the post-war era for the UK at least after the 1970s. So we have a, a, a somewhat different story. I suspect one of the things that wouldn't show up in your 50-year you know, time series is China. Um, and China's relatively I mean if you define China more widely to include Korea and Taiwan, then, then I, I guess you'd get a slightly different story. but uh, China only really, really emerged this, this century as a major player in international trade. And I worry that we're probably attaching too much importance to it. I mean, uh, 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 Sophie did quote what I think seems to be a very good UK study that does pick up a China phenomenon. But but most of the arguments about China come from this big seminal work in the United States, um, uh, Autor, Dorn, and Hansen, which showed that there was a correlation uh, between. Uh, Chinese import penetration and uh, wage wage levels and growth I think and also unemployment levels and also trump voting patterns Um, but those studies have been criticized and there are others in the United States which tend to show that the China impact has actually been very positive for the United States Um, so just just in passing just a few comments on sophie's paper i think it was that she does make this very helpful distinction between the terms of which we think we do need to emphasize between the terms of trade impact and the trade adjustment impact they're quite different i mean if, if we're talking about a big oil shock <coughs> there is a, an adjustment effect in you know if you're thinking about aberdeen uh, but by and large it's a, it's an indirect tax on the british economy it sort of pushes up cost, pulls out demand as uh, so what we call the cost of living crisis um, uh, but that's quite different in its impact from most of the kind of sectoral trade adjustment uh, impacts that we've had um, and of course calls for a different kind of policy response um, I think the second point about the paper which again was a, I think a very helpful insight is that when we think about trade impacts and exposure we need to think about services as well as manufacturers. As that's quite an important insight. Uh, and I think I was just reflecting on some of the services sectors which have had a trade um, exposure and, and how they've responded to it. Uh, I was rather struck by the fact that um, we used to have quite a big call centre industry, uh, which of course dis- largely disappeared in the Indian competition. I don't recall in my 20 years as an MP anybody ever standing up and saying we've got to save our call center industry it just sort of qu- quietly disappeared though you could argue that it's as much to do with critical communications as uh, all those huawei masks that are having to be ripped out because they're a threat to our national security but the call center industry just disappeared which is a, a fairly you know common phenomenon if you have flexible labor markets people you know just adjust and do something else and the contrast in another service sector is, is what happens with tourism. Um, in, a, in, in the 70s and 80s, we imported cheap sunshine uh, from the Mediterranean in the form of package tourism, uh, which had a very significant effect on the British economy. And what's left behind is Blackpool, Skegness, and Margate, um, You know, left behind areas where, where there has been a, a major trade adjustment issue so within the services sector as within manufacturers you have this rather differential trade adjustment impact and if we look at manufacturers i I did a lot of studies as as was mentioned in the 70s and 80s looking at um, textiles um, sheffield cutlery uh, shoes and most of those industries just sort of quietly disappeared um, because there was actually very rapid turnover in the labor market most of the workers were semi skilled women um, and they they were, they were just absorbed and the, the, there was very little um, legacy but the contrast with shipbuilding steel uh, where we 're still living with with the effects on some of those towns is 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 very striking so the services manufacturing point I think is rather important, and I think the third point on sophie's paper is which i think she's quite right to emphasize is how much um of the changes we're seeing are due to final consumption um and, and I, we were talking before the meeting about one case i remember which is the, the dundee jute industry which is i think the first post-war trade policy debate we had when harold macmillan was was being pursued to introduce import quotas on uh, competition from India but actually the problem... Vince, um,
0: remind everyone what jute is because the, the youth <laughs> watching at home, I know you all know what jute is tell everyone at home what we're talking about, what was being made in... Done. Well
2: these are these jute fibres from the Indian subcontinent which make these you know if you go to uh, environmentally friendly shops you get these nice bags of... Uh, if
0: you live in a hippie bit of Britain you yes. get
2: a jute bag when you go to the hippie shop. Yeah that's right but they were driven out not so much by Indian competition as by plastic bags um, you know, consumption matters, and it's, it's fundamental. Um, but I, the point I would add that, that we need to think, I think, not so much about final consumption as intermediate consumption, because it was what's happening in international trade is a lot of intra-industry as well as inter-industry trade. You know, When we export minis, um, we're also importing German engines, whatever is uh, we use in, in Oxford. Uh, when we import Airbuses, um, we're not just importing from France we're exporting British wings you know this this intra-industry effect is massively important and of uh, course I, I promised myself I wasn't going to talk about Brexit but, but you know one of the significant factors of the European Union was the customs union which has promoted a lot of this very intense intra-industry trade and that's how the consumption effects often work Um, i'll just finally say a couple of things about policy um, and particularly how do we um, operate trade policy in such a way as to make adjustment easier given that we're a relatively open economy and we assume we're going to remain that way Um, when when we talk about export exposure import exposure we're essentially talking about our old friend comparative advantage uh, and when i um, tried to restart industrial policy in the coalition government in the 2011-12 the first exercise we did was to look at reveal comparative advantage as a way of defining the sectors that we wish to com- concentrate on and we did as i think sure sophie would have approved we had several services sector. We, we, we had um, creative industries and we also had professional services. And these were sort of sector bodies alongside the aerospace industry, the biotech industry, the, the car industry, uh, which we, we, we felt that we should be promoting through this industry policy collaboration of uh, government and, and, and the private sector. Um, the, the problem with sector policy I mean you can do a lot of good horizontal policies you know improving labour markets the problem with a lot of this sector policies is, is actually what what level of aggregation you, you you want to apply I mean if we take a, a sector like tourism um, there is a lot of clamour within the tourism industry for example to have VAT exemptions you know this is a you know needs sector support but then this may be helpful in Margate but do you really want to subsidise London, Edinburgh, Cambridge and uh, uh, all the other major tourist centres but then you narrow it down to the coastal towns but do you really want to help Brighton and Bournemouth which have you know Premier League football teams and a highly thriving community so so these adjustment issues at a sector level are very very highly specific uh, and uh, place specific and the kind of thing that actually government isn't terribly good at um, so you know that my view that there, there, there is a role for um, active sector policies in, in an industrial strategy and I think you know we did a reasonably good job of doing that what, what we what you're trying to do I think is is make um, the industries you're focusing on essentially more price and elastic so they're not subject to um you know, China shocks or the equivalent, um, trying to make your your cars or your aeroplanes more like Swiss watches, uh, which are sort of independent of trade shocks and exchange rate changes, for that matter. Um, I'm sure we'll come back to that in more detail, but. Uh, I think the second point and the concluding point I make in conclusion is can we see any big trade shocks coming over the horizon and the answer is yes there's a very big one you can see the tsunami on the horizon which is although I minimized uh, the China shock earlier but, you know we are now in a very difficult position where the Chinese level of consumer demand is very depressed for a mixture of reasons political and economic vast excess capacity in a lot of very highly competitive Chinese industries and we uh, the European Union the United States are going to be hit by very large volumes of electric vehicles solar panels uh, turbines but also other things you know semiconductors many many others Um, there is going to be a real dilemma here you know how do you deal with this is not classic dumping because actually Chinese prices are higher in foreign markets or here than they are in China so it's not dumping but it's very highly competitive potentially um, possesses very difficult adjustment issues there is a real danger that uh, you know hyper-nationalists sort of jump on this um, if Mr. Trump gets back, um, one of the first hires will be a man called Peter Navarro, who is currently in prison, um, but a sort of trade economist who jumped on the China anti-China bandwagon and will demand, you know, trade warfare with China. So this is potentially coming down the track, and I think we do need to think about how Britain would respond to that. You know, we're no longer in the European Union. You know, how does Britain respond? Do we just take? you know take the uh, the hit on the chin Uh, do we copy what the European Union are doing Uh, temporary protectionism I think is probably what will happen Um, or do we just passively adjust I mean real policy dilemma here I don't know that there are simple answers to it but I will finish up with a chart I used to use when I was in shell group planning which I haven't Show it on the screen, but this is a sort of cobweb. Sorry, you probably can't see it. Describe this in a lot of detail. It's a a wonderful cobweb about what happened into world trade between 1929 and 1933. And you start here and it goes round and round, falling month by month by month until the value of trade relative to gold was actually a third of the original price um, value. Sorry. And that was partly collapsing commodity prices, but it was also trade warfare. And you know, we could, could be back there again fairly soon.
0: Well, that's a perky place to finish. <laughs> right, thanks for that. Thank you very much indeed, Vince. I thought that was overall going to be really perky. And then we got a criminal's coming back to the White House and trade is going to collapse around the world like it did in the 30s. Um, right, Emily, I hope you're going to be perkier than that. Over to you.
3: I'm going to try. I'm not, you. I'll do my best. I'm not sure I'm going to win. Um, Thank you for having me here, and congratulations, Sophie. It's a really thought-provoking and important report, I think. We often shy away from the downsides of trade and the trade shocks. We always talk about the gains from trade. I think it's quite important to update both our understanding of trade shocks, and you really help us with that, um, but I'm also a professor of public policy, so I'm going to talk quite a lot about the policy implications. Um, So I'm going to make a few comments about what I think are the nature of the trade shocks and actually um, complement some of what... I think Vince has just said, and then focus on the policy questions. So I think you're right. I think when we think about trade shocks, we think about the old style loss of jobs in cars, in manufacturing, the hollowing out of the rust belt um, and all the communities that lost out and are still struggling um, with the closure of old old style uh, manufacturing. But as you point out, manufacturing is a relatively low um, percentage of UK employment now. So we've seen this big sectoral shift into services um, and into tradable services. Um, And that's the big shift. And this is a global shift as well. So I'm gonna just refer to um, Richard Baldwin's work here, which is really helpful. Um, And what he's shown us is over the last 20 um, or 30 years with information communication technologies taking off, what was really hard to trade was services. And as over time, they've become easier and easier to trade. So we've seen the unbundling of services supply chains. Um, And we've seen that accelerate with digitalization. So if you can think about telehealth, Right. if you wanted health you really needed to go in person to the hospital um, we're now able for example if you're being scanned at midnight in oxford you go for an mri scan it might well be somebody is sitting in australia in the daytime there who's interpreting analyzing that scan and sending the information back to oxford right so services has become much more tradable, many segments of services, because of this information, communication technology revolution, and it's accelerating, um, particularly because of digitalization. So while we've seen, and absolutely we have seen this slowdown at the aggregate level in terms of trade to GDP globally, the segment that's growing is the services economy, particularly digitally delivered um, services. And actually that, so in one sense, that's a really good news for the UK, Um, Tradable services now make up 45% of our economy, employ about 30% of our workforce. So this tradable sector has become the sort of draw, the growth sector. Um, Our services trade now, the latest state data is that we think about 75% of our services exports are now digitally delivered. Okay, so we're we're doing services, we're very much integrated, They're um, they're very much highly integrated into global supply chains. Um, and trade exposure. The jobs that are most exposed to trade, as you beautifully point out, are these services jobs. So um, all well and good. I think the bit that we need to think quite carefully about is, is we're drawing more and more of the UK population into those highly traded services sectors. Yes, it's the high-end professionals who are most exposed, but actually lower and middle-income households are also being pulled into those tradable services sectors. More and more people are working in those segments. And while their, their level of trade exposure might not be quite as high, their vulnerability, their ability to adapt to those type of shocks, um, is, is that they're sort of less well-placed. And that matters. And going back to Richard Baldwin's work, what he's saying is that, look, if we look at why services, which bits of services trade are growing most rapidly, it's in intermediate services, so business-to-business services. So you might be an architect standing and sitting in London, um, and you might basically outsource part of the job to somebody sitting in India. You might say, okay, could you design for me my website? Or can you manage my HR? So we're seeing a lot more unbundling of services, but also the relocation of a lot of those intermediate services to emerging economies. So that's great for the growth of emerging economies. So the segments of the services sectors that are growing fastest are um, those services in in, uh, emerging economies. So the, at the moment, if you look at the aggregate level, the US and the UK are really leading in services, the second largest exporter of, of services globally. Um, but the bits that are catching up are emerging markets. And what that means, and this is where I think, and I haven't seen good data, but this is where I think we need to keep our eye on, is the possibility that a lot of the people that are being drawn into the tradable services sector, who are sitting in lower middle income ho- households, are the ones that are gonna be potentially impacted as those bits of services are then outsourced so i do wonder whether we're not only going to see the sort of trade shock coming from electric vehicles from china bigger concern for me is that we're going to see the displacement of jobs in the sort of middle bracket of services to emerging economies Um, so i think we do need to really watch watch out for that and then i think that your papers are also really helpful in drawing attention to these consumption base, the sort of price, the import um, side of things and the fact that um, lower income households are particularly precarious when it comes to managing and absorbing, adapting to shocks, for example in the essentials like food and fuel. Um, So huge thanks for drawing our attention to it and just to put on the table this question of whether we've got a trade shock coming down that's going to hit us in the services, that middle part of the services sector. So does this all matter? Um, I think, Vince, there you mentioned the fact that in the past, you know, service sectors have just quietly died, right? Call centres have quietly moved abroad, people have quietly adjusted. Um, and yes, they have, but I think we've also got to be thinking quite carefully about the ability of people to adapt and to move um, as we, as they, ma- as they, and to be able to manage these trade shocks. And actually, historically, we've done pretty badly on that measure. Um, So we've we've sort of not managed to cater for people that are affected by trade shocks. And you can see that historically. You can see the fact that our old-fashioned manufacturing areas that have seen job losses are often still the ones that are sort of left behind. So we've got a a spatial inequality that is partly the result of our past failure to to really address and support communities to to manage trade shocks. Um, So I want to try and make the case for... From a policy perspective doing much more to support communities to adapt to, adapt to trade shocks which i do think will keep coming um, so firstly and the, perhaps one of the main reasons to do this is sort of social justice right to address inequality and just from a moral um, perspective because as, as we know the more you're exposed to trade classically it's those stronger sectors of the economy that win and gain it's the weaker sectors of the economy that tend to lose um, so there's always been uh, a very strong moral argument for cushioning um, th- those who lose out. And I think particularly at the moment, if we're looking at the fact that we've got these sort of temporary, we hope, shocks on, um, on the consumption side in fuel and food, we've got households at the moment that are really precarious, Right, we've got very low levels of savings, um, very low levels of resilience among the low income households, they're particularly vulnerable to these type of price shocks. So a very modest change in, those, in, those, in that consum- the price of uh, if you like baked beans or your, your daily um, consumption basket can actually tip households from sort of just about managing into um, absolutely not managing. So there's a, there's a real vulnerability there. But even if you put the ethical and kind of moral obligations aside, there's a very strong, I think social political argument. Um, for addressing trade shocks, and this is an old style argument that goes back to seminal work by John Ruggie in the 1980s, and what he said was, if you want to maintain an open economy, you absolutely need to address the losers, if you like, um, those who are struggling with um, the, the, supply, the trade shocks and managing them. And the point now that he was saying there was more actually the political project To sustain an open economy, you need to be doing the redistribution else the politics unravels. You get the populist backlash um, against trade. So actually from a political viability of the open economy model, you need to be thinking about supporting communities to to manage those um, supply side or those trade uh, shocks. And I think it's interesting that how few governments have really managed to do that. I think the European style, um, sorry, it's continental Europe, if you look at sort of France, Germany, Denmark, have done better, and I'm going to come back um, to that point. But even if you put aside all of the ethical arguments and all of the political arguments, there's a very good economic argument, I think, for supporting households to really um, be much more resilient in the face of a trade shock. Um, and the point here is that trade, and I think the global economy is ever in momentum, right? It's ever changing. And our ability to to derive benefits from that means staying at the head of the curve, right? We need a productive labor force. We need the innovation. We need to be right at that cutting edge. And we need to be pulling more and more people and supporting them to be productive in those new sectors that are opening up. And here, the point that I want to make is that when households are only just managing and they're really struggling to get along, they're often not in a position then to invest in that upskilling um, and so what happens is our failure to support households to manage and be resilient in the face of trade shocks actually acts as a drag on productivity. I if that makes sense. Um, to, to land that point, and the, the example, it often gets used, but I think it's a useful one, is Denmark's flexicurity approach. Um, so, And I know there's a good Resolution Foundation There's always a good report. Resolution Foundation report. I loved it. Whatever I went to look for the... Yeah, I went to look up the latest data I could find, and your, your report popped up. But it's a really interesting model, um, because what the Danish model has done is, and it's not perfect, and we can go in the discussion, perhaps some of the downsides of, what, of the model, but I think what they've done is managed to have a very flexible approach to um, labor markets. So they've got a similar level of flexibility from a firm's point of view um, to the UK. But the radical difference is that they both provide a much more effective social security net, and they provide much more active um, labour market policies, which means that if you're out of a job, you've got more of a safety net. And what that means is then people are, they're, they're able to look for they're able to look and have the security to look for new jobs, knowing that okay, if I give this job up, I retrain, I'm gonna I'm okay. I've got something somebody's got my back, right? So you've got that social security network, and they're also providing they're putting a huge more, amount more than we do into then training people to be in a position. Um, to adapt. And just the numbers on that, we don't have great recent data as far as I can tell, um, but the recent sort of five years ago, we were putting 0.3% of our GDP into those type of active labor market policies Denmark was putting um, 2% in, right? So that's a huge, huge difference. Um, So all to say, therefore, I think if we wanna be, we've got a productivity problem in the UK, we've got a serious skills problem, and we've got a massive problem of inequality. And the point I want to make to you is, as we're buffeted by more and more trade shocks, actually supporting the lower and middle income households to then address them can actually help us out, not only from a kind of addressing inequality and a social cohesion point of view, but actually I think it would, will serve us well in terms of staying at the edge of the global economy and being right right there to then seize the, the opportunities to, that arise um, from trade. Great. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Emily. It's always upsetting to sit here as a kind of pretend Swede hearing Denmark praised. The, um, but, you know, we've all, we've all got our cross to bear. This one can just go on the list. Right. OK, we've got a lot to get through. Um, we've got about half an hour and we're going to talk about the future of global trade. Um, so let's start the history. So I thought we should start on the old problems and just get your assessment of whether we should, the ones that used to dominate trade discussions or still do, but maybe they shouldn't, and decide how much we should still care about them. So let's start where it all began with the farmers. So historically, let's do 19th century trade disputes, except for kind of us trying to force open some markets around the world, a lot of it is basically food, That's what we're arguing about. Lots of British politics is falling out over food, trade policy around food. The, um, uh, the Liberal Party in those days is their defining mission in lots of ways. So far, and one of the weird things about British politics in the last 20 years is, like when I was a youth, the Conservative Party was the Farmers' Party right the, um, but we actually look at actual policy decisions in the recent past mm-hmm. it's very confusing about what we're actually trying to achieve do we want the cheap food for the consumers or do we want the domestically produced food either because we believe in food security if there's going to be another war whatever it is or because we like the farmers. The, um, uh, so vince what's, what has happened to the politics of farmers does it matter anymore is this issue kind of 1850s not 2050s.
2: Well, I'm, I'm very struck by the very sophisticated way that the National Farmers Union now present their case. It's a very different. This is Manette Batters. Manette Batters. For any
0: lobbyists, you should just watch her and copy her. It's brilliant. She's a very impressive woman.
2: Brilliant communicator, great <laughs> understanding of the, the technical issues. Um, I mean, I make a sort of. Well, first of all, I've got a bit of a, a declaration of interest. My, my, as it happens, my wife is a small scale farmer. Uh, but abandoned livestock farming for the easier route of horsey culture. She's been trade shocked. Trade shocked, yeah. Um, but but no, I, I, I make a distinction between sort of marginal farming, you know, and I know it's much more complex. But marginal farming, you know, hill farming, where there is a public good involved, mm. uh, you could argue, you know, landscape management, conservation in general, and where there is a justification for a, you know substantial subsidy directly or indirectly. Uh, I have more doubt about whether it's justified to have effective subsidisation of arable farming in large-scale arable farming in East Anglia. You know, why, why do we do it? You know, particularly things like sugar. You know, you can import from uh, cane-producing countries at lower cost and developmental benefit. So I, I would, you know, I would differentiate within the farming sector.
0: So you're basically a proper liberal
2: when it comes to food. Yeah, I think so. Very yeah.
0: That will shock everybody there. Emily, what do you reckon, do you think, so the, the current policy, what's interesting is, so in general, British public policy doesn't spend a lot of time thinking about agriculture these days, mm. but in trade policy it is making a difference in the short term. So mm-hmm. Canada cheddar cheese is the current, like we're probably not going to get a Canadian trade deal in the nearest future because of the disagreements on mm. this. So is this because the farmers are actually more imp- powerful than we think politically, or are we just going to wait a bit till we're after an election, and then sell yeah. the cheddar cheese down the river?
3: So it's interesting, right? We had the same debate with Australia and New Zealand and the free trade agreements there yeah. and tariff liberalisation displacing. Although a
0: weird lack of the discussion prior to the deal being done, and then everybody being like, "Excuse me, I'm panicking off." Excuse after. me, <laughs> yeah.
3: But also, I think there we saw a bit of a split actually between Defra, if I if we can read out the politics at the cabinet level between Defra and the Department for yeah. Trade, as it was then. And I think actually that speaks to a wider problem of our trade policy at the moment is that we don't necessarily we're not all singing from the same hymn sheet so i think one of my top line messages would be let's have coherence across the board but are we going to set out our objectives in just
0: to push you a bit on we so we should definitely I, be coherent but we're going to keep selling out the farmers so i
3: don't think they've got the political i don't think they've necessarily got the political clout in terms of numbers but i think we all un- we get it we understand the fact that if you reduce tariffs and you've got cheaper new zealand's lamb coming in we're going to displace the welsh hill farmers so I think people understand the trade displacement story in agriculture more than they do, for example, in services. It's more visible. Do
0: you think the public care?
3: Yeah, I think, I think, well, the public care, I think on that story, I think we've got traction in the media narrative, but actually, and this is the bit I want to add two points to what you and Vincent have just mentioned. Biodiversity and just the future of the countryside, I think is a really salient public policy issue, but also food standards, right? If anything's going to sink the US, a deal with the US, if, if, shift, if the US shifts, and there's going to be a lot of shifts, in the US, right? Food standard is gonna keep coming up and it will. Um, and there is a there's a concern British consumers do care about the quality of food, the sort of the ethics of food, etc. And more and more so. So I think those are the bits that are becoming more politically salient.
0: Okay, let's do um that's farmers done. That's all we've got time for. Right, let's do deindustrialization. So that as as Sophie started out by saying is the bit of this that got all the attention. Um mm-hmm. Uh, over most of the last 20 years, not least because we've lived through some pretty large changes before that. the the um, One of my favourite charts, that you mentioned this earlier, but on the shoe manufacturing, which I think is called leather goods manufacturing in the ONS tables, the decline in the workforce, even as late as the late 90s into the very early, is just incredibly precipitous. It's basically like 75% of it goes within like, I think it might even be as short as a decade, because basically the last remaining old workers disappear, basically, who have clung on around Northamptonshire. And... Um, uh, and the rest so you do see these very large changes coming through but then you gave us an example from we were discussing earlier. but I think the Dundee jute manufacturing decline starts straight after the first world war so even though deindustrialization at a macro level isn't coming through the figures until the 70s the, um, uh, in some places textiles or jute it's going on far far earlier so Sophie should we think about this as basically is this is that problem done and is it done because as in the employment effects of the deindustrialization, obviously lots of other things are going on. Is it, and Or is it something that can restart because we're now at what you had 9, 10% of the workforce yeah. left working in manufacturing? Are we done or we've got more to come?
1: Um, so I think, I mean, to come back to what Vince um, mentioned earlier in terms of what's happening to globalization, we're not seeing goods trade keep increasing as a share of kind of global GDP anymore and we are seeing it sort of continue on the services side. And that might suggest that maybe you're not going to see this kind of uh, big expansion in kind of manufacturing happening again. I think really what it suggests is that if you do see that, it's kind of coming from somewhere else. And because the UK is not the big player in manufacturing anymore, it probably means a big manufacturing shock, you know, a big kind of manufacturing expansion in one country. I don't know if India is big enough, it's got the scale. If it suddenly became a massive player in manufacturing, it's it's not really the UK that's going to be like most hard hit by that. It's probably China China, and Vietnam. um, Yeah, the countries that are already doing it and the countries that are already producing the goods that we import because they're just much more likely to kind of competing in a kind of like for like um, fashion. Um, Yeah, so I think UK workers will like there's obviously going to be some exposure but I don't think it's going to be the the big shock and I think Emily's kind of talked about where some of those big shocks might be in future yeah,
2: there are yeah. you know, manufacturing shocks coming through, through the system Maybe South Wales is the obvious one and yeah. um, Scunthorpe um, and the car industry which actually had a big revival 10-15 years ago is now relatively, we still have a, a half a million people directly, indirectly involved. Um, and so the, the EV China we issue definitely is going to be a big it, yeah. one for the UK. I'll I just, just make one the, the real problem with manufacturing are these sort of lumpy localised problems. I mean, yeah. just to take a little anecdote, um, Swan Hunter was closing its yard, I think about 20 years ago. Um, and there was a big national cry, you know, we've got to protect the shipbuilding industry. And I fielded the debate from my side and I discovered that there are actually more people employed in the Twickenham shipbuilding industry than there were in Swan Hunter because we had, you know, making and repairing leisure birds, but we also had a cluster of maritime computer companies that were doing all the design work for Korea and, uh, you know, actually Quite a substantial sector here. So, the the real but that's not to minimise the problem in Newcastle. You've got a a group of middle-aged men, late middle-aged men, with very specific real skills who are basically just being cast aside as nothing. They're never going to re-enter the labour market.
0: The um, on on the trade versus tech argument. So, in the end. Vince, why don't you give us your take on this? On how much on on the on the job side of deindustrialisation, how much is really the issue trade, and how much is it just everyone likes productivity growth? Productivity growth means fewer workers in manufacturing. It's technology, not trade, doing the work.
2: Well, all the studies that were done in the seventies, eighties. Okay, it was, we're now getting much more effective, dynamic models and so on. But 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 the earlier work also always suggested that. Uh, the trade effect was exaggerated, that, that most of the jobs would have been lost in any event because of technological change. Uh, that's true, for example, Lancashire Textiles was a good example. Um, that certainly in the weaving bit of the supply chain, um, you know, labor-intensive weaving was disappearing. You were getting and Viola, and The rest of them doing you know synthetic fibers, very highly capital intensive. This, this was you could argue that trade spurred that, um, but, but 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 actually it was technology that was driving the job losses. Can right. I just jump in on yes, so go the
3: interesting thing, and I'm, I did say I wasn't going to talk much about Brexit, but on manufacturing and cars and supply chains, there, what we're seeing is. Globally, manufacturing supply chains sort of relocalize as you've got kind of proximity to customers becomes more and more important. So regional markets really matter. And actually there, I think for the future of our, some of our manufacturing sectors, the relationship with Europe is going to be really important. So we've got a kind of self-imposed trade shock basically on some, that's hit some of our manufacturing sectors rather than an automation but industries shock
0: with, with large the, on that scale, are de- basically. Well,
3: they're dependent on European supply chains that are really integrated into those European supply chains. Um, so I think that's something that we can work on. but the Bigger point on, on the in on the manufacturing sector is just that ability to stay at the cutting edge, right? So I think here the industrial policy is going to really matter. Um, I just wanted to pick up on your point earlier about electric vehicles, etc. How which sectors we choose to now support and giving sectors and including the car industry enough of a time horizon and certainty. So I think our industrial policy has been flip flopping, and that's not helping. Um, provide any certainty or any future, but also I think we've got to be very careful and smart about how we do that industrial policy.
2: Yeah, there's also a just-in-time phenomenon. We're seeing with the disruption of supply routes that there are real economic advantages in producing close, close to, to the your customers. consumers. Mm. And we've got a bit of a revival happening in garments and you know, Yorkshire Worsteds, for example, mm. based mm. on a just-in-time yeah. phenomenon.
0: Yeah, that's why you should always, even if you take globalisation on the good side to its extremes, you'll probably always have some domestic production because people do want some stuff quickish. Ready meals are harder to ship. They, um, I'm joking, but look at what look at what manufacturing is actually growing, yeah, food, food, food manufacturing. <laughs> yeah, that is what is going on. Stop eating your ready meals, people. Right, now, from there to Trump. So let's do the first question from online, Edward's question. So one of the weird things is, and so Vince gave you all the figures for levels of trade openness, right? And the US is the one that stands out amongst advanced economies for not being very open due to being very large, broadly. um, But one of the puzzles is the country that's the least open to trade, because it's a continent rather than a small island, um, is the one where trade politics is a much bigger deal. Now, I'm hoping that all the politicians are paying lots of attention today, but trade politics outside of Brexit, obviously... um, isn't a big part of British politics and hasn't really been since the 70s and 80s, whereas in the US, it's a very large part of mm-hmm. the, um So f- why is that? Why is US politics trade-focused, and we, despite being much more open, aren't? Vince, any ideas?
2: Well, I guess one factor is that self-sufficiency is, is a realizable objective in the United States, whereas for, for us, it's- Madness. T- to complete madness and unobtainable. So, so if you start with the psychology, you can produce everything. Um, any threat to that is, is potentially problematic. Maybe. And I think the, the, the other factor is that the, and it goes back to your point about services. I mean, the, the, the people who used to lobby hardest for trade openness in the United yes. States, oh, Wall, like. Wall, Wall, Wall Street, um, yes. mm. and particularly in relation to China, nobody wants to hear from Wall Street. Yeah.
0: yeah. That's not, that's exactly right. On um, so Sophie, here's a like here's a conundrum for you on this front. Okay, there on this, what happens when so the doubt? So tr- let's say Trump becomes president. president. I know it's going to make everyone stressed, but like just keep your heart palpitations under control until November. So um, and we get some form of trade war with China, um, and it is a inevitably a goods focused trade war because that's where mm. the politics mainly is. Because nobody cares about Wall Street, like you say the, um particularly. So maybe that's like globally not a great thing. Is this just an, Is this actually an argument that the UK's comparative advantages in services is actually a safer place to be if Europe gets dragged into a US versus China versus the European Union trade war? Because everyone's gonna be fighting, EVs we're gonna come back to it in a second, but everyone's definitely gonna be fighting about EVs, wider production on renewable energy. They, um, and actually they might not notice the Brits sneaking around, flogging our films and our financial services and other stuff. So is this a good place to be?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it depends how it materialises, right? Because um, we think about it as a a China-US trade war, but what we saw in the first Trump presidency was, you know, tariffs that were also placed on a lot of other countries um, and massively impacted their trade flows with the US. Um, And so, you know, it, it. how, how will the UK but other countries and the rest of Europe be affected by a, a kind of broader protectionist trade policy that it might implement. Um, the World Bank did a study that basically looked at this, you know, if China and the US kind of go at it uh, and start a big trade war and I mean the other thing to say is remember that the tariffs that he put in place are still there it's not like Biden took them away so they're kind of already in the trade war to some extent Um, But he's
0: promised to do more
1: but he's promised to do more and if he does um, this study by the World Bank basically said well if you are a third country just stay open and just ignore it because then they both kind of end up diverting towards you, and and you actually do better off than if you kind of raise your barri- raise your raise your trade barriers in response. But to your point about the UK being particularly focused in services, I mean, so it's not only global trends that are, make it a positive reason to be in services. Um, yeah, global services trade is still growing when when goods hasn't been. Um, but yeah, it does seem to be less the focus of of where that kind of attention has been. Um. I think you know we still need to be realistic like whether we're going to end up getting new market access to the US and services or you know really kind of like move, pushing things forwards is still looking quite unlikely yeah. um, but can we just kind of yeah keep keep flogging our flogging our exports to the US um, you know we are quite similar to Americans and they seem sort we of need to like make trading bar- with we need us to more. make
0: the barbies the, yeah. um, the films not the I, I
2: don't think I'm just say so, you know Britain should forget about manufacturing because mm. 9 10% of gdp and it's pretty resilient yeah, definitely what's left, that, actually. Yeah. Advanced manufacturing in the UK, mm-hmm. some of those niche but very high-quality manufacturers yep. are world-beating, and yep. Yep. shouldn't forget that.
3: Just on this, I think, as well, we often think of trade war and Trump, but actually, if we look at Obama, is was the one who put in the first restrictions. It, conti- it You know, Trump intensified, Biden's largely continued. So the optics and the, you know, the sound and the headlines have intensified, but actually, it's, we've got quite a consistent... Cross-party approach to China in the U.S. And yes, I think it might intensify if Trump's back. I think we often overlook the continuity.
0: But that's just telling us that it's structural, basically. As in the politics of I think the, is driving that. I think, the,
3: yeah, I think there's something to be said for that. And I think then for the U.K., I think the big question is what we do about areas of vulnerability where we've, we're critically reliant on particular supply chains, for example, on semi-advanced semiconductors. The temptation, I think, is to try and f- emulate the US and the EU and say let's do self-sufficiency. But I think that's where we've got to be very careful as to is that smart or do we then buy and rely on the EU and the US for some of these critical resources? And that's yes. the bit I don't think we've yet figured out.
0: Okay, well, let, well let's do that because one of the, so the, one of the bits of trade policy that is growing at least in people writing about it and politicians saying they're doing something, is how does trade hit security mm. concerns? You've raised one of them, which is basically uh, on um, chips, but you get the same thing on um, uh, most inputs to advanced manufacturing are up in the discussion. And while security in the olden days meant food production, nowadays it means more broadly. How, do you think that is a, how exposed is the UK to that, given what we actually produce? So we don't currently produce chips. We'd like to, we design chips. Mm-hmm. arms price has gone up by another mm. another fifty percent or something in the last few weeks on the back of the ai mm. um, uh, demand, but we don 't produce any chips they, um, but the rest of the world is worried about that for the Taiwan reason rather than anything else they, um, but there are other areas where the security concern people are now writing if you're in Whitehall now you 're writing papers on the overlap between trade and security policy mm-hmm. they've got lots of words in them they don 't have any policy in them uh, you 're getting people now talking about um, we do have more control on the sale of domestic companies to foreign owners than we did than when you were a business secretary those have been brought in over the last few years there's now a row about whether they should be tightened up or loosened so securocrats are securocrats going to be in charge of trade policy
2: well they they are oh yes uh, <laughs> but i wouldn't say well is that a good or a bad thing uh, generally a bad thing but maybe because it's so lazy you know there, there was this long i mean you know there's the the, the french yogurt and, and so on i know we're not quite as paranoid here um, <laughs> remind them about the Fr- not everyone well, is, well, this is was, i uh, think in the 70s uh, one of the french presidents declared you know we're going to have strategic industries and one of them i movement. think it was Danone that was threatened yeah. by a foreign competition or a takeover and has declared a security interest mm. uh, we don't want to get into that silliness but I mean, I was heavily involved in all the arguments around Huawei when our own people judged that collaboration with China um, through Huawei was actually very much in our national interest and didn't present an unmanageable security problem, but um, under pressure from the United States, we, Mm. we had to throw Huawei out. Uh, it wasn't our security interest, but, but, but I think when people wave the flag of security, it's very difficult to argue against it because there's no—you can't quantify it. But um, I, I think it's been used in a, in a lazy and rather dangerous way at the moment. What do
0: you think? So, are we going to spend? Are we going to, you know, is Spooks going to be running our trade policy?
1: Uh, well, I mean, if you look at the kind of supply chain resilience strategy or um, I don't know we we reference it in in the paper but it it has these kind of five things that we should do about it and one of them is um you know, we need more kind of self-reliance and we need to we need to be producing stuff at home. And then the other one is we need to like diversify our trade so that we have mm. more suppliers. So it's kind of like is it more trade or less trade that's the solution to um uh stronger resilience. Um and I think that the the natural reaction is you see all these kind of trade shocks hitting the UK and you think, oh well actually if we were if we were more self-sufficient then we would have less shocks or we would be less exposed to this thing. But actually you're just a lot more exposed to your domestic shocks, which will be bigger so it's kind of I do want sort of much more frequent small shocks or really big painful domestic shocks um and so so yeah so I think that is a really important lesson
0: people that people never say that at least at least the paper had both those bullets in it because sometimes (laughs) you hear people just saying security means producing it here at home and then you're like it doesn't but you know when the turnip harvest fails because all we're eating this stuff in Britain well then there's nothing left. The, um, whereas I mean and you should be eating turnips I'm sure they're very healthy but like a, <laughs> you want a diverse supply of your turnips so that when one country's turnip supply fails not everybody runs out of turnips. Anyway, leaving turnips to net zero the because um, uh, you've all raised that and that is in lots of areas where you're going to get a lot of the issues we've been talking about so manufacturing, um, uh, Trump wars, um, uh, security come together in how do we deal with net zero? So one of the questions, someone, was, uh, an anonymous question here, which means a civil servant is asking, is will a UK CBAM help protect us against trade um, exposure? We generally so. Well, what, so if, why don't you start tell them what the CBAM is and where we're up to and how much we're going to end up copying the Europeans?
1: Yeah, so uh, it's a carbon border adjustment mechanism. It's essentially when you are charging for carbon domestically, you're the argument is that that puts your suppliers um, at a competitive disadvantage from countries that aren't kind of taxing the carbon in their countries. The EU has kind of is is sort of much more advanced in in the process of implementing its version um, of the CBAM, um, and the UK has been consulting on what on what the UK is going to do. It looks very likely that we'll have some kind of similar scheme in place. I think the really big question at the moment is how well aligned those two schemes are, both from um, Uh, You know, obviously that's really important for firms that are going to have to be operating both of those processes, Um, but um, yeah, I mean, it's also really important for our UK firms because if they are fully aligned, um, which requires quite a lot lot of changes to our carbon pricing uh, program alignment of our kind of carbon processing with the EU as well um, but it means that you know you, you you don't have to operate that process at all you should you, you can just kind of bypass it because you have perfectly aligned systems so um, yeah I think yeah that's it's gonna play a very important role um, in terms of yeah whether we decide to align with the EU on it
0: Vince you were saying earlier on um, so you're in general more relaxed on the uh, China front than I'd say is the consensus view of people standing for elective office or appointed office <laughs> actually in the EU these days is there any way we're getting through the 2020s without basically banning a lot of Chinese cars
2: in Europe? Um, well I hope we don't go there on that route. Your mic is being crushed oh, by your hand. <laughs> I mean we, we have a, a sort of precedent of how to deal with these things which was with, with the Japanese because we, we went yeah. through all this before and um, Whatever you think about Margaret Thatcher, she had a sort of an intelligent approach to this which is instead of banning Japanese cars, uh, getting them to build them in Britain. Um, and I, I think you know we, we're probably better going down that route with the Chinese. Do you think we're go- but the question was are we going to? what's um, actually going to happen?
0: All I would say is it looks like the commission is going to end up. That are less. I
2: don't think they're going to ban them, I mean I think you're going to get a very messy reaction in Europe, um, I mean f- you know if you're, if you're a European consumer the the uh, Chinese cars are cheaper than, uh, they're cheap, they're high quality mm-hmm. and they're environmentally friendly so why would you want to just exclude them from the market? So there will be pressure to have anti-dumping duties, which will probably happen, however inappropriately, or countervailing duties. Um, yeah. but, but I think we, we will eventually adjust to it in the way that we have to other waves in the car industry. I'll just to give you the counter-argument, so
0: there's a, a guy who I won't name who was, this is before the last presidential election in France, so this um, uh, guy who was involved in running Macron's election campaign Um, out of nowhere I asked for a meeting because he happened to be in London. I didn't know the guy. He didn't say what it was about. um, So eventually I met him and basically the entire discussion was this, was basically we cannot have the French car industry being hollowed out by this. You will have Le Pen, you will have the far right, and I don't give a toss about your liberal arguments about the consumers. I'm not having that and so we're going to be banning this. So just a counter, gently. But,
3: but this comes back to this question then supporting those industries that are not necessarily very competitive to then upskill, upgrade, support workers to move. Because I think, again, it comes back to us not having supported the communities that are adversely affected by trade shocks. And I, I hear, Vince, and I agree with you on so much of, that if we need desperately to move to a much greener economy, it's an absolute imperative. And we've got to get the politics to align with it. And neglecting some of the distributional implications of trade at our peril, um, but so the answer do you, then so is. do you want protection. the EV banned or not? We've got to be, I, I green energy, thank you China, right? In the sense of the, we've but, got, but Do so we want the,
0: I mean, this is like, in the next two years, European policymakers, including in Britain, are going to decide whether they're letting large-scale Chinese imports happen or not.
3: Only if they don't, like if they're really artificially subsidized, but they're not, they're unlikely to be? The reality is that I think. I mean, the, we see, but I think in China could be very competitive in EVs without subsidies. So even if that I think that's, that's the interesting true, yeah. point.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the real issue, I think, is not Stellantis. Actually, it's Volkswagen. Yeah. Uh, it's the BMW yeah. and Jaguar Land Rover, all, yeah. all of which actually are making vast profits in China. In China. Yep. Um, so that's it's complicated the for it's them. It's complicated.
0: It's definitely complicated for them, right? Okay, we should um, we should start to um, wrap up the on Let's give us one last thing to go into like for policy making so is we've discussed all this exposure side of things is the most important thing that matters in this space trade policy security policy or is it just like wide economic policy you're basically calling for a good social democrat settlement Is it when we think about, because this is complicated, right? We've gone through loads of different overlapping exposures that affect different people and different households in different ways on the consumption side, the production side, different time periods. So should we spend our time thinking about trade policy or should we actually just be like, look, let's get the the basic economic policy right. Trade policy is pretty minor when it comes to these things. Like as you said, it's, it's not the trade policy that determines how many workers really work in the manufacturing sector. It's more to do with other developments. So we can just give each view on that and then we'll have a poll and then we'll wrap up. So Sophie, trade, economic, security, something else.
1: Um Well, I think having a sensible economic policy that underpins um yeah, like the economic strengths is really important. But I will talk about the trade strategy because I think first of all, it needs to be aligned with that economic strategy that you have. Um, and secondly, it needs to be kind of modernised. It needs to be specific to, to an economy that looks like the UK, um, and I think that's probably one of the areas that we've been failing um, in recent years. So, you know, we are, as has been said, the second biggest services exporter. We've talked a lot about professional services becoming more export exposed. We've talked a lot about how that has affected the trade exposure of workers, um, but we haven't really talked about what that means for a, for a trade strategy. Um, and we've done, you know, work on this in the past, but. Ultimately, the kind of traditional trade tools that get used, free trade agreements, but also the kind of countervailing measures, the, the ways that you respond to trade threats have all been very focused on um, how you deal with trading goods. And so we do need to kind of be thinking as a major services um, trading economy, mm-hmm. what does a, a services focused trade policy look like? Um, and, you know, we've, we've set out what that might look like as a starting point, some services trade agreements, but yeah, just more broadly thinking about that a bit more.
2: Very
0: they good. Like impressive that. plug for the back catalogue there, Sophie. Yeah. <laughs> Vince, what do you
2: think? Well, I would say that a central part of economic policy, particularly if we get a change of government, is to have an industrial strategy. And that is implicitly about trade policy in part, yep. but it's also about a of other things, horizontal, vertical, blah, blah, blah. Yep. And on security, of course, you've got to check that there aren't too many Chinamen hiding under the bed, but um, <laughs> it shouldn't be driving our national <laughs> economic policy. Uh, uh, right. <laughs> Emily.
3: I, yeah, I agree with both of those points. I think we need a be a much clearer economic strategy and a trade policy that feeds in and is actually coherent and linked across skills. Oh,
0: that would be nice. But again, right, Here, last, here's for l- wishful thinking. I'm in pro-wishful thinking. it has got some of us through the last twenty years. Right. Now um here's our last poll to wrap us up. What are you most worried about? So is the danger that loads of our workers are, are now dependent them? on Export markets and those markets, we talked about services, but it's also true on some bits of manufacturing. Those markets disappear. Is it that we should worry about cheap imports? That's the old problem, that's the farmers, because there'll be no jobs left for the people who they're competing with. Should we worry about expensive imports? That's like, did have you all paid your energy bill in the last uh, few years? Do uh, you, just, you just want to carry on worrying about Brexit? Or do you want to worry about, and I know where this is going to go, but I mean, you know, it's a free country or is it deglobalization generally again we generally mean deglobalization here on the good side but it's potentially possible also on the um service side what are you most worried about so let's give you one sentence each from you and then we'll see what the punters think sophie what are you most worried about um
1: what am i most worried about of this I only this poll is coming so i should really be the most prepared um whether we actually i think what the report suggests is that the trade exposure to exports has been increasing, and so the most undervalued of these or the most- I See what you did there. Yeah, the one that is not getting enough attention is okay. the first one.
0: Very good. I mean, what are you worrying
2: about?
3: Yeah, on the first one, I'm changing it from losing markets. I think it's displaced workers in those services. cause of
2: that. Okay, very good. Vince, what's on your list? I would say deglobalisation as a negative, and that we are potentially heading to trade blocks, which we're not part of. Mm.
0: We are definitely exposed to that world uh, occurring. Right, okay, let's bring up the results of the poll and then wrap us up so we at least know what we should be angsting as we go home. That's, yeah. see, mm. I think that is not surprising. I'm, I'm, with the, I'm with the democracy on this. Like, have we just been through the last two years? It was pretty terrible, it needs yeah. to go away. I want cheap gas flowing in all over Europe. That's what we need, everyone, and on that happy note, can we all thank our panel for everything today? <laughs> Thank you all for coming. If you want another Resolution Foundation event beginning with tea, we're going to be talking about tax cuts on Wednesday because the budget is coming, but tax cuts are not actually. Have a nice day, everyone. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest Living Standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.